Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Vern Inge, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks, glad to be here. Now, I'm saying Center of the Universe uh, because it's the name of the podcast, Stories from the Center of the Universe, but you and I both grew up in the Center of the Universe, Ashland, Virginia. We did. We did. And uh, you live in a suburb out here now. I still live in the middle of it. <laughs> yes, you so. do. You are definitely the center of the universe. I, I think when I say center of the universe for the podcast, I mean our conversation becomes the center of the universe for the time we're chatting. Perfect. And, and we're very close to the actual center of the universe. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Did you grow up in town? I uh, actually depends on what you mean growing up. I, first of all, I'm not sure I have grown up yet. But uh, <laughs> nice. Um, but I moved in town uh, in uh, high school. My mom married a football coach at Randolph Macon, ah, and okay. so my stepfather lived in a uh, house owned by the college right there in the middle of the college, and uh, so moved there in ninth, right before ninth grade. Oh, so where were so, you before that? Uh, well, um, moved around a bit, but my dad was a lawyer in Richmond. Uh, we lived over on South side of Richmond. Then okay. he decided he wanted to be Thomas Jefferson and move out to the country and practice law in the city. And so he bought a farm out in Beaverdam next to Scotchtown. And okay. so we moved out there for a while. Parents got divorced inevitably cause he couldn't travel that far. And, uh, right. uh, and so, uh, we ended up moving back into Chesterfield for a while until my mom remarried and we moved back to Ashland. So it was ninth grade. I was back in Ashland. So when people ask you where you're from, what do you say? Oh, Ashland. Yeah. Okay. And, that, and, you know, I went to Gandy when we lived in Beaverdam. So that was a haul. Yeah. Long bus ride. It was probably an hour long bus ride. Oh, stopping that's... and all that stuff and taking the bus across Horseshoe Bridge on a snowy morning and all those things. <laughs> on on a good weather day. That's, that's, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because <laughs> it's still that's one right. lane, right? They haven't done anything to that's that right. bridge. That's right. Still one lane. Yeah. Yeah, an hour, yeah, people that don't know Hanover County that well, it is a big county. Yeah. And yeah. back when you and I were coming up, uh, there were two high schools, two junior highs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and uh, tell people it was back in the days of long distance, and it was uh, three directions from Ashen was long distance to call within the school district. Because, you know, Gumtree, Doswell area, or out to Beaverdam, and, and uh, to Rockville were all long distance. I forgot so, that. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, think about it. nobody pays long distance anymore. But yeah, we had yeah. calling cards back in the right, day. Right, right. You had you had so. to use a calling card to call up. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. So you came to Ashland as a upcoming freshman, or, right? Or incoming freshman in high school, yeah. and you didn't know anybody. I well, no, I because I, oh, I I'd gone to Gandy, yeah, so Gandy. Uh, the kids who had gone to Hanover Academy, of course, hadn't gone to Gandy. I did know some of them from playing sports and stuff, but um, but I did know the the public school kids at Gandy. So uh, and then went to Liberty. I started off because um, I guess Liberty was eighth and ninth grade then, so right. I was in the middle of that. It started as ninth grade at Liberty. Gotcha. So, oh yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. Uh, I'm three years younger than you. When I went to Liberty, they had just opened up seventh grade. Right. And they kept the ninth grade there. Yeah. It was weird to have seventh graders and ninth graders in the same school. Yeah. 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 There were so. a lot of a lot of girl fights at Liberty. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do you remember girl I, fights? I don't. I don't even remember that. But it was three years longer ago for me. Yeah. And maybe that you know, adding the seventh and ninth graders made a difference. But uh, yeah. Well, I re- so it would have been your class. It would have been the first ninth grade at Patrick Henry, right? I didn't go to Patrick Henry, oh, but yeah, it yeah. would have been. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, left after seventh grade and uh, went to a school in Richmond. Oh, okay, all right. Good times. Yeah. Uh, so did you, so because you knew kids, it wasn't that big of a. Uh, integration for you no I wasn't and my parents got uh, married and mom and stepfather got married in May so 
we moved in there in May. I lived literally out Rob Stiles' back door, and there were oh. a bunch of kids in the neighborhood. So the, some of the private school, Hanover Academy kids, I got to know that way. So I knew a bunch of people by the time school started. So you grew up right next to the college, and your, your stepdad well, worked there. Yeah, like in the middle. I mean, right behind Duncan Memorial Church there, where there's a parking lot now, was the house I grew up in in high school anyway. Did you so, play around at Randolph making a lot? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was my stepfather was football coach and then athletic director. So I, you know, ran around to played basketball in the gym all the time or ran around in the fields all the time. So, I did too. Yeah. It was awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were spoiled actually to have yeah. access oh, to all that. It was all really good. Yeah. Yeah. And they didn't check for the, the townie kids at all. Like no. my, my mom ended up working there by the time I was in high school. But when I was a younger kid, like eight, nine, 10, I used to go in there all the time, and nobody seemed to care that, yeah. that I was going in there. Yeah, they, they didn't. Occasionally, you get the students complaining a little bit. I do remember a time or two, they were like, you know, kick the kids out. And somebody said, he's the athletic director's son. I'm not kicking him out. <laughs> so, you know, that was a nice perk. But rarely did they even bother with it. I think the college students probably liked having the kids around, frankly. They weren't taking up too much space. There weren't so, a lot of us. Right. And, and we were just playing sports. Yeah. That's all yeah. we were doing. Yeah. We weren't causing trouble. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So when you had uh, your your own time, you're not in school. Your parents aren't telling you what to do. You're like 10, 11, 12 years old. What were you doing? Well, I, of course, I was what fourteen or something by the time I moved back out sorry, here. But sorry. yeah, so we'd go play football and soccer and everything else in the science center field there. Uh, what's that on? Um, it's uh, College Avenue right yep, there. Yep, yep. Um, and so we would we'd play football, seemed like all the time, but soccer, other sports, that was a big thing to do after school. And, you know, of course, in the evenings, everybody go to Anthony's parking lot on the weekend nights. So That was really the only place to go, right? right? Yep, that's where everybody met up to figure out where the trouble was. So <laughs> I keep screwing up the fact that you didn't live here yep. younger than, than uh, junior high, high school yep. age, because I've – I've always thought of you for 54 years of my life. Well, I guess I I knew of you when I was 12 or 13 as always being an Ashland guy. I didn't realize you came here at uh, 14. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I I went to the schools here before and lived in Beaver Dam for – Three or four years before that, so well to an Ashland kid, Beaver Dam. Oh yeah, not really the same. Deep suburbs. I mean, (laughs) way out of town. Yeah, but you would have been in. Seventh grade at Gandy when I was in fourth grade at Gandy, so we actually did go to right. Gandy at the same time. That's right. Yeah, but That's you right. definitely weren't checking, hanging out with the fourth. <laughs> That's right. Y'all in a different building, but you know that was the single brick building was yeah. where the fourth graders were. That's so. exactly right. Yeah, yeah, good memory. So yeah, yeah it was, uh, that was a weird campus. That that whole yeah. layout. Yeah, yeah, but it, it it worked out. So soccer or football was a bigger thing for you. Well, I played high school soccer, so for me, that was the the real sport. And it was, I, I tell people this all the time, it's really odd. My stepfather is just the greatest guy, but was a you know national champions, college football coach, All-American quarterback, all that stuff. Um, my brother, me, nor my stepbrother ever played one down organized football, I don't think. We were all soccer players. My two brothers played in college. And uh, wow. it's sort of surprising. I don't know if he was worried about head injuries back then or – or maybe it was he was busy during football season and never really pushed us to play. But um, for whatever reason, it, he didn't discourage it, but none of us ever really played. So. I think parents uh, of your stepdad and mom's generation and my parents, they were like, hey, if you want to play, great. Yeah. If you don't want to play, we're not going to push you. I, don't, I never felt forced to play anything. Right. I agree. Yeah, I never felt that way. Yeah. So. What, what was it about soccer that you gravitated to? 
Uh, it, mostly the other kids that were playing, uh, Rob Styles, Ted Schubert, you know, the guys that I hung out with in high school were soccer players and they said, come on, play soccer. So I did. So was, uh, Zach Kennedy on your team? He, uh, Zach was on the team, but we didn't actually play at the same time. I didn't really start playing until I was a junior gotcha. in high school. And he was so, a couple years ahead of you. Yeah, he was a couple years ahead. Yeah. So he was gone by the time I started playing. Yeah. I, so. I mentioned him cause he's my first cousin. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, I wish you did though, because he was uh, he was a trip. He was yeah. he was fun to be around, and yeah. he loved soccer. Yeah, he absolutely loved it. But it was more of a, a friend thing for you. So yeah, yeah, it was yeah, just the friends, and then of course you know um, got into it competitively, and I actually just stopped playing. I oh really? I tore my Achilles about three or four years ago, and I, I played all the way through adulthood and actually just um sunday easter i had like half my soccer team that's still playing together out for easter so we Good still for you. Mo- mostly spanish speaking but they're a bunch of great guys and we hang out together all the time that's really yeah. cool uh yeah. you mentioned ted and rob who was the better of the three of you at soccer uh ted schubert really uh, yeah ted he was a defender so he wasn't going to score many goals or anything but right. he was really solid in the back and if you we would say i mean rob styles was a really good player too but played more up front and yeah. i you know i i was a late comer to the game so i was i was uh just knocking people around i, I so. could see ted uh being pretty tough on defense yeah very tough yeah. and strong-willed very determined to get the ball so. Did you know you were going to college at a young age? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was always, you know, clear to me. That's what I was doing. So you were academically inclined yeah. and very serious about school? Oh, uh, no. I was academically <laughs> inclined, not serious about school. So, uh, you, you were a typical teenager, maybe. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, I and, you know acted up a lot. And one of my stories from Patrick Henry was they, when you're senior back then, I assume they still do it. I don't know if you get... Um, certain grades you don't have to take the final exam mm. and I took uh, physics and I won't mention his name because it's not real flattering but the physics teacher then didn't know how to do calculus and if you can do calculus all the formulas in physics are really easy and I know how to do a calculus and he kept making me show my work working through all the formulas I'm like this is stupid I can get the answer in two steps and so I got an 11 average one six weeks <laughs> <laughs> And to be clear, this wasn't on a twenty-point scale. No, out of a hundred, I had an eleven average, and uh, and so I had to take the final exam, and I there was no way to pass the class with that with an eleven average sure. in there. But I got the best grade in the class on the two final exams. He said, "Well, I can't flunk you." Of course, you know all the smart kids didn't take the final right. exam, <laughs> right. but uh, he said uh, he he passed me. But uh, yeah, we had. I had some falling outs with teachers just having a bad teenager attitude. So. Yeah, 11's an attention getter. Yeah. I mean, anything under a 60's an attention getter. Yeah. 11, you're yeah. like, what? Yep. It's, uh, yeah. My parents had something to say about it. So. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you were saved by the two finals. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, managed to go to college. So, so. Uh, you chose to go uh, locally. Well, it was really a blessing. My uh, um, University of Richmond had, or still has, a tuition exchange program with faculty at Randolph-Macon, so I got to go there for free. So it's a great yeah. reciprocity program. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. And so I, you know, got to go there free, and it, it, it was a perfect fit for me. Really worked out great. So I know you and Ross Luck know each other. Yeah. By my understanding, Ross Luck is the last person from Richmond area to ever go to University of Richmond. It's pretty close, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there may be a few other that they let in by mistake. Maybe they sent their application postmark from New Jersey and it, you know, got in. But yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, my my dad went to law school there. Uh, Trip Chalkley went undergrad in law school yeah. there. Uh, 
lot of people that generation went to U of R, have awesome memories of U of R. Now, kids that are 20, 21, 22, they all know more about New York City or Northern Jersey or Eastern PA than they do about Virginia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, um it's interesting, and part of it is those schools are like Richmond's so expensive now. It's just ridiculously expensive, and I'm sure they give scholarships and things, but still, really hard for you know most kids to go there. Well, and so. it's uh, well from from North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia to go there. I imagine the kids that are coming from uh, the north. Everything's expensive up there, and U of R maybe seems like a deal to them. Probably so, although it seems to me that all the private schools talk around the country because they're always priced almost within a few bucks of each other. Yeah. Is it ironic that they're uh, Baptist in the North didn't really exist? I don't think they do even today. Very Catholic part of the country. Yeah. And University of Richmond was founded by Baptists, right? That's right, and still, I think today is still technically a Baptist school, but it's... uh, um, it certainly doesn't wear the religion on its sleeve. It's yeah. no Liberty University, and but I think there's a you know a certain number of the board of trustees that have to be Baptist and oh, all that still. stuff. Still, I think so. Still, yeah, it wow. certainly was when I was there. It was technically affiliated with the Baptist Church, but it was really loose. So, what are your uh, fondest memories of going to U of R uh, that will not incriminate yourself or others? <laughs> <laughs> well. There, there are lots of them, but it's the people. Um, you know, the school was a great fit for me, just a great size. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't do well academically, as we referenced in, uh, in high school, and, in fact, had really good test scores and really bad GPA. Mm-hmm. So that's not a great recipe for getting into schools. But uh, somehow Richmond let me in, and uh, um, I, you know, got really good grades at Richmond because I liked the professors, challenged by the work, enjoyed it. But the people, the um, fraternity brothers, but others on, you know, uh, around school or, you know, in the dorms, it was just a great place to go to school and uh, had a great time there. So Yeah, there are a lot of schools today and and maybe back in the mid-80s that they cared more about the aptitude of the child, especially young men, because their brains aren't fully formed until they're in their (laughs) mid-20s, right? So they're like, hey, Bad GPA. It's probably because he's 16, 17, 18 in high school. He he will mature, and his aptitude seems to be really high. So we're going to take a chance on this kid. Maybe and it so. worked out. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what it was. I still wonder sometimes why they let me in there. But so. I'm going I think it's probably aptitude. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any uh, safe stories to talk about from your fraternity days? Well, let's see. Uh, you know, we're, we had lots of fun, but there's, I, I think Ross uh, Luck made reference to his. He, in fact, I never knew that he and Martin Gravely were called the Duke Boys because <laughs> Martin's older brother, Paige, and I were, were the original Duke Boys. And Does Ross know that? that uh, oh, yeah. Ross, he mentioned it. Okay, he said it, it. Uh, that Paige and I were, and they just called them the same thing because they, you know, showed up a couple years later from Hanover County and, uh, uh, it was, um, but it's interesting because by then most of the kids were from the north. And, Even then, yeah, and the the Duke boys were, you know, was it probably wasn't on the air anymore. It might have been, but uh, uh, but they just thought we were the funniest things in the world. So, and the fun, the really funny thing about that is, you're going to school in your backyard, and they're kids from the north because they outnumber you and they're making fun yeah. of you. Yeah, well, they uh, be, to be fair, they you know everybody has nicknames in college. There sure, were worse sure. worse ones than the Duke boys. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So, some you can't talk about on the podcast. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so, when did you know you wanted to go to law school? You know, it's funny because my dad was a lawyer, was a solo practitioner basically in Richmond. And um, and so, I, I thought as a kid I was going to be a lawyer. And then, 
um, as I got to college, decided I didn't what I wanted to do. Mm. And then sort of was getting near the end of college, and it was mostly like, wow, this is a whole lot of fun. Maybe I'll stick around at school for a while. And so I you know, started uh, thinking about going to law school and decided probably as a junior, um, maybe, maybe even a senior again, that I would go to law school. Was so. it more about continuing school or more about uh, learning the law or, or a good mix of the two? I think it was probably a mix. It was, you know, first it was probably though continuing school because I really didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up anyway, and then uh, and but also um, you know studying the law, figuring out if that's really what I mean. That's part of it is you have no idea at least going to a professional school like that if it's really what you want to do. And uh, so a lot of money, a lot of time committed to that. Yeah, certainly a lot of time back then. Fortunately, it wasn't a ton of money. Oh, really? Um, so I, I was fortunate enough then to get into UVA law school, and I, I shudder to tell people this I paid two thousand dollars a semester. What is now fifty five, sixty thousand dollars a year to go to school there, but uh, in the law school, but it's uh, you know, it was really inexpensive for me. So, and that wasn't a special deal, that's what everybody no, was that was, it was you know, state school, and that's what you paid to. Go to UVA Law School. So, so I so you went to UVA Law School eighty eight to ninety one. Rob right. sent me your bio. Yeah, uh, I went to UVA undergrad eighty seven to ninety one. Okay. and so you and I actually overlapped. And once yep. again, well, you we graduated together. We, we did. Yeah. You didn't know I existed that entire time either. <laughs> um, and UVA undergrad was thirty two hundred a year. Yeah. So they really got crazy. You taking up to four thousand. That's right. Here yeah. for law school. Yeah. That's and of course the in state, out of state paid more, but that's right. that's right. It you know would have been you know about the same thing. What a bargain! So, oh yeah, it's just an incredible deal. Uh, so. I mean UVA law school. You you and I could. I, I have no idea. You could tell me all the finer points of what it was like going through UVA law school, but the brand of coming out of UVA law school and you're only paying twelve thousand dollars over three years. Yep, and it was yeah, a, you know, just an amazing place. Really smart people uh, that you're hanging out with. Really good professors and great job opportunities when you come out. And the great thing about UVA Law, and it's still the case, I think, is that I had lots of friends who, of course, went to Richmond because you know it's. In fact, we'd gone there undergrad. A lot of them went straight through, and others who. Um, have gone to other, you know, William and Mary, other law schools around, and um, and even some of the top ones like you know Harvard or whatever, and they work really, really hard because the students are competing against each other, and literally you hear stories about them stealing books off the shelf back in the days of books so that yeah. one student could do better than the others. And Virginia just had an entirely collaborative attitude of everybody's going to learn together. We're not competing. They had what they called the B-mean, which in, in some ways made it the whole school a joke because 80% of the class was going to get a B. <laughs> and it didn't matter what you did. You're going to get a B. Right. And I, I, one of my roommates in law school, really smart kid, um, but he worked his tail off. And the rest of us were having a great time. I mean, you know, all sorts of partying and things. And 80% B cuts both ways. Right. That's right. And, yeah. and so, you know, we're laughing at him going, you're going to get the same grades as us. And, you know, of course... <laughs> You know, he goes off and right out of school gets a job for, you know, a, a more money than us in, in New York. And then two years later is working for Bank of America doing complicated securities deals. And, you know, make, he ended up making millions and retired at like 45 years old. So, 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 <laughs> so, so, he, so it, it worked out for him. So, but, so yeah. there's a lesson in there, kids. Yeah, uh, that's right. That's right. Uncle uh, Dell when you're in law yeah. school or 
any yeah. other post grad or or yeah. college to your story. Right. Yeah, that's right. Um, but the uh, yeah, the, but law school was really great fun too because good learning experience, but also great people, and we had a we had a really you know some in some level the professionals go to law school to party. You know, you get you've been doing it for four years, you get three more to figure it out even more. So yeah. it's, uh, we had a great time. Uh, I should have asked you this when we were talking about undergrad. Uh, what was your major? Uh, political science and American studies. I was um, a little bit of a, a lucky thing, I guess, but I, I knew my uncle was sort of a famous professor. Um, and he actually, I'm not sure he was at Randolph-Macon by then. He had been um, at Michigan State, um, a couple of schools in Spain and different places around the world. It, he was chair of the English department at BCU at one time, but he was an American studies guy and was apparently very famous American studies. You know, everybody knew him in the field. And so I went down to Richmond and the American studies you know, sponsor thought I was the, you know, the, the greatest kid ever because I'm Tom Inge's nephew. And, uh, and I enjoyed it. It was an interdisciplinary major where you studied literature from America and music from America and, you know, all different things you had to take. And so really was, American culture. Yeah, American culture. And it was yeah. really, you know, I enjoyed that. So it worked a good fit for me, but it didn't hurt that the sponsor was going to give me every advantage I could get. Is your uncle still around? Uh, no, he passed away probably a year ago. But he was teaching at Randolph-Macon until, oh, wow. you know, basically the day he died. So, yeah. uh, um, cause he had gone to school there a very long time ago. And as he retired, he came back and taught classes there, but he's, a, he was a, um, a, a couple of things he was really an expert in. He, I think he saw every single movie that ever came out. He would literally, some, a lot of them don't come to Richmond. He would go New York or other places to see him. And he was also had one of the, maybe the world's biggest comic book collection. He actually gave it to West Point. They had a big comic book collection in the library there. Uh, so before he died, he donated to West Point. But uh, Does he, he have a connection to West Point? No. It was just apparently they're big comic book collectors. Mm-hmm. And he wanted the his collection to go, you know, be part of theirs. Uh, but... He was, you know, good friends with Charles Schultz and, you know, the, oh, the wow. Peanuts writer and all sorts of things. A really interesting guy. Oh, my uh, gosh. So, yeah. so, I'm sorry. Every movie ever made by an American I prob- Probably. I, I'm sure he saw a lot of foreign films, too, and he taught abroad. And it, one of his goals at one time was to go to every country in the world to at least visit. And I'm not sure it's possible because the country's changed so much. Right. I don't know if he ever did that or not. But I, at one time, he, that was his goal. If you so. could take a snapshot of, like, the countries in 1978 and then right. visit all those. But, but some <laughs> of them right. would be gone by the time you that, got to that part of the world. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so uh, political science and American studies, it sounds like American studies because you enjoyed it. Right. Uh, political science you probably enjoyed as well, but that probably was a more obvious fit for a kid going to law school. Uh, probably. Again, you know, I wasn't really sure I was going to go to law school, but I did enjoy the political science part too. And it got me opportunities to work. Like I worked for Elmo Cross, who was our senator from here in yeah. the General Assembly while I was in school and things like that as you know, result of that. So it's good experiences. Neat. Yeah, it was great experiences there. So. Uh, and you did that while you were in uh, law school or at U of R? At U of R. Really? Yeah. That's a pretty so. cool opportunity. Oh, it was great. Really great. Not a lot of kids get that opportunity, I imagine. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, those just sort of, I mean, you know, legislative aid, I guess, and, you know, one on his team. I think there was only, it actually, uh, Mrs. Flippo, Carter Flippo's Mm -hmm. mother was the, was his aide. Uh And so, uh, you know, I just helped her out and and sent her across out with whatever they needed. I had no idea she was his aide. Yep. She was, yeah. Yeah, That's cool. Yeah. 
All right. So when you're in law school, anybody thinking about going to law school someday, whether they're in high school now or college, is it just an, an unbelievable, unbelievable amount of studying and writing and reading? It just well, I mean, you had fun, yeah, but you you had to read a lot. So, I imagine. So I think it is for a lot of kids, and I teach at a class as an adjunct at the Richmond Law School. I, I really think it is for a lot of kids. At Virginia, honestly, it's not that much. Mm. Um, you you do. I spent my first couple of months going, "Wow, these are really smart kids," and I got to figure out how to get my feet under me because you know they're all Ivy League grads. It seemed like, or just other really really smart people. But uh, once you once I got my feet under me, it really was not an incredible amount. And um, as a story, one of my law partners, future law partners told me, but he had gone to University of Wisconsin uh, for law school, but he got married, transferred to UVA for his third year. And he, he shows up in class and says, there's a piece of paper going around the first day of class. He says, what's this? And it says, it's an outline group. So what you do is there are 14 weeks of class. You sign up for one of the 14 weeks and it's your job to go to class that week and outline it for everybody else. And everybody collects a you know a book of the outlines. And so you got the class. Now, my trick for law school was I always went to class. Or, and it, and it, that's what, frankly, I did undergrad, too. I would take every class at Richmond started at 8.15 in the morning. I would Ooh. take every 8.15 I could because I knew the other kids wouldn't show up. And uh, if I was, you know, no matter how bad I felt, I would always sit in that seat. And that was my the way I got through law school, too, was I always went because I felt like I, I just learned better by hearing it than reading it. So Well, it's also genius because there's a relationship you have with the professor. Right. And if he sees you in there at 8.15 every time class is scheduled and the other kids aren't coming to that 8.15, right. you stand a really good chance of getting a good grade. I, I, I figured that out at a young age. <laughs> I, I'm, 50, I'm 54, Vern, and I'm just learning this now. <laughs> that I, I should have thought about college that way. Because I was one of those kids that didn't go to all the colleges, and they definitely didn't sign up for 8.15 right, classes. Right. Yeah, so, uh, and that had to be hard because you were probably having a, a little fun from time to time. Too. I was, but I, I'm lucky, I've, I guess, in that way. I've always been a morning person. Mm-hmm. So, but and there were times where I hadn't gone to bed when I showed up for class, Ooh. but I, you know, rolled on through it, and then uh, to be young again. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, you're about to. At what point do you start uh, worrying about the bar? Oh, it's pretty early in law school. And uh, one of the things about uh, UVA, which is a fantastic school, is they don't teach you practical law. It's all theory and national law. Um, places like Richmond do a really nice job of teaching the students what Virginia law is and what you need to know for the bar if you're taking the Virginia bar. And UVA, they really don't. And so... why? That's a conscious decision, obviously. Why, why do they do that? Are they trying to attract more people from around the country? It is. Yeah, it is certainly a national law. You know, it's one of the top 10 of the country, however you rank them. And they different rankings put them in different places, but it's certainly a top 10 school. And so, yeah, every, people are coming from all over the country, going to go practice everywhere. In fact, I'd say most don't practice in Virginia. Um, A lot go to New York or D.C. or wherever. They want kids who are going to be like Supreme Court clerks Mm -hmm. and, you know, things like that. And it's an academic exercise. There's also a political, I would say, affiliation. There's it's what they call a law and economics school where it's more on the conservative side. Mm -hmm. Um, UVA and University of Chicago Law School are the two sort of leaders in that. And so you're just learning more theory 
Um, and then it, like Berkeley at University of California is, you know, a, uh, is what they call critical legal studies, a liberal school. And they're also theory. So you spend a lot of time talking more about what the law should be legal theory than you, you spend a lot of time talking about what it is, but nationally not, um, or, or even internationally, but not just in Virginia. Where, so the bar for Virginia yeah. had to be hard for you. Well, it, they do a really great job of, um, you know, their paid services, but they hire really smart law school professors to you spend the summer before you take the bar exam studying just Virginia law. And so, you know, it, it probably was more of a challenge for me than the kids that had gone to Richmond, but it wasn't that hard. It was just a matter of, you know, go to class again, study pretty well. And, uh, um, you know, I... You know, was made managed to pass it. They don't tell you by how much. So uh, as long as you pass, you it's pass. A, it's a P or an F, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And so you're, you're, I think maybe not remembering how hard that was. I imagine those were long days that summer. Well, the, the long days in the summer, but it and it the stress is pretty high because if you don't pass, it's going to be really embarrassing. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's um, uh, you know I'll, I'll say it wasn't a terrible summer. I mean, I got to do things like drive to Toronto for the All Star game now. The guy I drove up there with and back, we were asking each other bar, bar exam <laughs> questions on the way up and back. But uh, it may be during the uh, seventh inning stretch. That, and, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. But it, you know, we got to do fun things. I, I caddied in the um, women's uh, public links championship uh, that uh, was hosted at Birdwood in Charlottesville that mm. summer, and you know, got to do a lot of fun things that summer. But I was when I was playing golf, I had um, headphones on with a Walkman where I recorded <laughs> back in the day. You know, it was a Walkman. You recorded those classes, and it would, you know, you could study that way. So I would go off for walks, or and sometimes play golf even while studying. So, yeah. So yeah. it was. It was. It sounds like it was an almost always on sort of thing. Even Pretty though much. You yeah. got to do some other things. Pretty much. Summer. Yeah. And so. taking the bar itself is it a one day thing? It's a two day thing in Virginia. Yeah. Okay. And how many how many hours do you have to take it? Uh, day one and then day two. The, I, my recollection is is probably it might be six hours each day. There's a morning and afternoon session each day, and it may be six hours, but I'm not even sure exactly what the time limits are can't that was a long time ago how were you notified that you uh, passed back then um the virginia lawyers weekly which is still a newspaper um would publish the names of people who passed and uh and but you would learn you know somewhere it gets circulated around uh, you know that they had their list and so you could call Mm. the so every young lawyer, you know, goes in their office, closes the door, and calls his phone number and gives them whatever you know a social security number or whatever the right. code was, and uh, and ask if you passed. And it might, probably was by name, and they tell you if you passed or failed, and then you could decide whether you're going to open your door again. <laughs> so, yeah. And so you so, called. Yep, I called. Yeah. Otherwise, you're waiting to comb through that newspaper, right? And. I, I imagine it was listed in alphabetical order. And yep. you're, you're looking for inch. That's right. That's right. But you called instead. Yeah. To find out a day or two before it prints by calling. So back then, now it's all done online, of course. Was it, uh, I imagine, thinking about making the phone call, the, the act of making the phone call, waiting for them to give you the answer had to be one of the most nervous times of your life. Pretty stressful, yeah. Yeah. But you got, what did they say? Did they say it in like very monotone way, you've passed? Or? You know, I don't even remember. I just remember that I passed. You, 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 heard, you heard pass. <laughs> yeah, you're that's like, right. that's all I need to hear. That's right. Fortunately, I was in a class of five at my first law firm. Uh, I think it was five of us. And all of us 
whatever the size was, we all passed. So we didn't have to worry about somebody who didn't, which would have been tough. You know, if, if, even if one of your friends hadn't passed, it would be a really, really tough uh, experience. I mean, what a bummer. Yeah. Well, for all so, five of you, but especially the kid that yeah, didn't pass. Right, right. Or the young adult at this point, because you're, yeah. you're in your mid-20s at this point. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right, so, so. Did, did you know what kind of law you wanted to get into? No, in fact, they always say the area of law you get into chooses you more than you choose mm-hmm. it. I did know I wanted to do courtroom work, and people, I think, kind of know if that's their personality or if they you know, want to be do deals and transactions. Uh, and so I knew I wanted to do courtroom work, but didn't know what area I was going to be doing. Um, it just sort of finds you more than you find it, I guess. Did you so. get into more civil early on? Or yes. Yeah. yeah, entirely civil. I mean, I will occasionally touch on a criminal issue, but it's pretty rare uh, for me. I'm all, you know, business litigation is my okay. field. I do a lot of it in sports, but um, it just came out of business litigation. And that's how you started at a law school, was at, business litigation. Business litigation, yeah. I joined yeah. Uh, relatively large law firms, Richmond office, and um, did business litigation, learned from some really good folks there. Um, and then I, I went to a startup firm that grew to a pretty large firm and then blew up as, after I've been there, twenty or 23 years I left, and a year later it blew up and filed bankruptcy. So it cool. was an interesting experience. So not, No uh, cause and effect there, you leaving and then filing I, bankruptcy. I hope not. So, <laughs> no. But uh, it was, yeah, it was you know interesting experience what, there. What was it about business litigation that was interesting to you? Well, it was fun that, um, you know, it's in some ways kind of like playing a sport, right? You're, you know, you're competing yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, that the, the litigation part, I liked about that. And, you know, got get your adrenaline going and all that. And, you know, had to perform on your feet, things like that. Um, the, the business side, to be honest, it probably was because they're willing to pay me more money to do mm. that than, uh, you know, if you went and did like, uh, you know, criminal practice, it's great for courtroom work, but it typically is lower pay, at least to start off with, um, than on the business side. So I just went to a firm that was, you know, had a program to train people and um, paid, you know, pretty good money back then. So Yeah, uh, guys that go, guys and young ladies that go to uh, firms that are really big have, and you tell me where I'm wrong, have uh, reputations for like, you're going to be doing 90 to 100 hours every week for the first few years of your Time as a lawyer, was that your experience? It, it's it's not quite that bad. I used to joke because a, a lot of my friends went to New York firms where it was that bad, and because uh, um, you know out of UVA law, you, if you wanted to, you had a real good chance, at least during a good economy, to go up there. And uh, I used to laugh and tell them I wanted to be the cot guy at the Cadwallader Wickersham and, and Taft firm because there was a guy apparently who would go around at nine o'clock and knock on your door and say, excuse me, sir, will you be requiring a cot this evening? <laughs> I want that job to make fun of you clowns. But, it, you know, we certainly worked hard and there were times and still are times in, in my practice where you're getting ready for trial or you're in trial where you have those kind of weeks. But, uh, you know, we much more closer to a 40, 50 hour week at a, you know, even a Richmond large firm than than the New York firms are doing to the really young lawyers. Are so. you doing, you're still doing courtroom work? Yes. Wow. So since you got out of law school, you've been doing courtroom yes. work. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they jury trials typically? 
It, it certainly can be. Um, sometimes depends on the case, and it, you know, arbitration has become more popular. So I have a fair bit of arbitrations, but most of my stuff is in court, and most of it ultimately would end in a jury trial. The problem with civil practice, if you will, is that almost everything settles. Um, mm-hmm. People can't, especially now, it's so expensive, and there's so much risk involved. People can't take the risk of, you know, of reaching a verdict most of the time. So it is smart for people to settle. And we have really good processes in place to get cases settled now. And, and quite frankly, judges um, lean on you really hard. Um, and I just had that about two hours ago, a federal judge leaning on me. And I'm, I'm representing the plaintiffs and the defendants both. I mean, extremely hard. <laughs> to, how, how does that settle. work where you're representing both? Well, I, I was representing, I'm representing the plaintiff, but the defendant's lawyers were, we were doing a hearing by phone and uh-huh. he was um, making it very, very clear to us that if our clients didn't settle the case, we're a bunch of idiots and our clients who are all over the country need to be in the, his courtroom Monday morning to explain why we haven't settled yet if we don't. <laughs> That's some serious pressure. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and, that, and the judges will do that. And so. is, is the judge doing that in that case? It could be a, a preference thing for that particular judge, or it could be, hey, this should be expedient. This should not take longer than it naturally should. Stop playing around. Let's just settle. It, it, it's probably better for everybody. That, that Well, he does know that it is better for everybody. And ultimately, he's trying to be efficient to make the parties get the settlement as fast as possible. Sometimes, you know, they, they, the judges don't, they don't ha- live the case every day like the lawyers do. And sometimes it's not quite ready for one reason or another to get settled. But uh, usually they get there. Not always. We do try civil cases. But usually they get to the place where people figure out what, you know, it should settle. Do you have any uh, stories, uh, names aside, that are, are would be extremely entertaining to the listeners of this I, podcast? I'm, I'm sure that I do. I'd say, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there have been a lot, I've had lots of really good experience, really interesting experiences in, uh, in trials as well as uh, with crazy things happening and, uh, um, and doing the sports stuff, I just got really fortunate. Ended up representing some famous athletes and uh, um, getting to do some pretty cool stuff as a result of that. That are uh, you like their personal attorney? Yes. Yeah. So what I really do is represent the agents, um, mm-hmm. and then the agents, when their players have trouble, they you know they call me. So uh, I've you know represented um, you know really I had a very famous Major League Baseball player who got in some sort of scuffle in a bar in Miami. And and the problem with those guys is they're targets, right? And sure. so the second there's a scuffle, which he says never really happened, he's getting sued. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he gets sued in today's world, he's going to get suspended. Because if somebody finds out he was anywhere close to a bar fight, the commissioner is going to suspend him. Right. So I, what I think I'm really good at is keeping stuff out of the press, keeping it quiet, um, in fact, I've, I've got one story I can tell publicly because it's all public, but Kevin Mitchell, who was MVP of the National League in 1989, um, I represented in litigation. He had the largest contract in Japanese baseball history and what was it, 95 was the strike year, I think. Sounds right, yeah. Um, and he got stiffed by his Japanese team because they said he was faking an injury and he needed the money because he had six kids by six different women that he was paying child support to. And uh, so we ended up putting him in bankruptcy. And uh, um, the 
if you've watched the show Broke on ESPN, they roll through for, it seems like forever, all these famous athletes that have filed bankruptcy. Kevin's name's not on there. Mm. And I was able to keep it entirely out of the press. Um, it, and one of the things we did was put it in on Christmas Eve, put him in bankruptcy Christmas Eve. And the papers didn't pick it up on Christmas Day because they just didn't check the filings. And in fact, San Diego had a paper that checked the bankruptcy filings every single day, but they just didn't go back and look on Christmas Eve. So they mm. never printed that he filed. And there was a story in Sports Illustrated a few years later uh, that talk, it was talking about women who get pregnant by professional athletes, some of whom have multiple kids with professional athletes. And they did mention in there that he had filed. But other than that, it's the only time I've ever seen it in the press. So, But you feel comfortable talking about it now? It's oh, just, yeah, because it is officially public. I mean, yeah. It's out there. And, of course, he's not a you know not even a player anymore. So, um, But, yeah, it's technically a public filing. But uh, Have you ever uh, had somebody that you worked with that you're like, I don't like them personally, but I still have to do my job? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I imagine that happens uh, more often than not. Oh yeah. Well, it's not not more. It's pretty rare. I mean, oh, you do, I, that, there maybe it's just I like most people, but um, but I'm I, thinking the egos it, that come with the money and the and the and, and some fame. Well, there there is some of that, but most people, when you get to know them one on one, especially if they're relying on you for important things in their lives, are pretty decent people. Mm-hmm. Some of them aren't. There are a few that aren't, but yeah. most of the athletes I've dealt with are really deep down good people. Some of them aren't real likable uh, to the public, including Kevin Mitchell is a really interesting one because he, I mean, Daryl Strawberry called him crazy. I kept telling Kevin that. He wrote in his book about how crazy he was. Like, it's hard to overcome, man. But but he's so likable. He's so friendly that even the press liked him. And I talk tell people about the difference between him and Barry Bonds because Barry Bonds is actually a pretty decent guy, but just was really cold to the press. Yeah. And, you know, obviously had the steroid issue, but um, but the press hated him. And Kevin Mitchell was a way worse human being in lots of ways, or is. I don't, you know, I don't know what he's up to these days, yeah. but he had done some pretty bad things because he was a gang member in San Diego. I oh, mean, wow. and, um, and there's some public stuff out there that he's done that's pretty bad. And that Daryl Strawberry wrote about, and uh, he, um, and but the press loves him, and he's just because he's real friendly, and yeah, it's it that simple. Yeah, that's right. You know, the old people. So yeah, uh, you you would you would hope that sports journalists are a little bit deeper than that. Yeah, but that a lot of them well, aren't. No, and and you know, let's face it. If somebody's friendly to you and is staying with kids and signing autographs all day, you can you'll put some things aside yeah. that they're doing than the person who's not friendly to anyone. And that's what you know Barry Bonds' issue, I think, was. So yeah, I think Barry Bonds was his own worst enemy. Yeah. through a lot of that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I don't know if that was his natural personality or if he just had a couple of bad experiences and said no more. Right. And that, it could, you know, could be. And I, I should say, I really didn't know Barry Bonds. I mean, he, you know, but uh, but just watching, observing what was going on. So, did you stay in Richmond the entire time? Oh yeah, yeah. My office has always been in Richmond. So, where is it uh, now? James Center downtown. Richmond. Okay. Yeah. And you, so. but you live in the center of the universe. That's right. You know, commute in. So, so besides going to U of R and, and UVA, have you always lived here as an adult? Uh, well, I lived in the fan when I was a young lawyer and, uh, then got married. Uh, we actually lived in the fan at first and then moved to, um, uh, the near West end for a few years. But as soon as, uh, my oldest was, uh, born, basically he, he lived a couple years in the near West end, but we moved out here when he was getting anywhere close to school age. And, uh, my other two were 
my middle one was born right before we moved out of here in 99. So. And, and you moved to the house you're in now. Yeah, 99. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So you've been there for almost 24 years. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's so before we started recording, you were telling me about what's uh, written in the, the deed for, for your house. Well, that's what they, they told me. The title guy told me that the uh, deed for the houses on the railway or the old ones there, that uh, you have a right to flag down a train and take a ride to Richmond. So uh, I think it's only funny to people yeah. like you. By the way, I didn't yeah. mention that Silent Rob is with us tonight, yeah. and, he, and he does have a live mic tonight, um, which is unusual. Uh, but you're, you're welcome to come in whenever you want, Rob. Um, it's funny to us to hear that story. People that didn't grow up near railroad tracks are like, what are you talking about? Who cares? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but so. it's, a fan, it's a wonderful house. Well, tell the story. And you reminded me. I, I knew the story of why Ashland uh, became a thing. But tell right. the story of uh, the origin of Ashland. Well, it, I, I think it sort of existed as a crossroads for a long time. But the, uh, um, the railroad really... Turn, tried to turn it into a resort anyway, and uh, we didn't talk about this before, but I, I see, you know, the Henry Clay Inn is up there, which is a replica of the original one, and mm-hmm. I, I, I've noticed, I don't know if you paid attention, there have these signs that they'll put old advertisements, and it talks about the hot springs oh, yeah, at Henry yeah. Clay Inn, and I'm like, I've been in this town a long time, I've never <laughs> seen a hot spring. <laughs> Somebody was boiling water and pouring it out back. <laughs> or, or Henry Clay Inn might, might have been somewhere out in the country, maybe. Maybe, but I think it was in basically that that spot. Where it, it actually it, burned down. I yeah, think. burned down, yeah. yeah. I think it was there originally, and, but anyway, it's, uh, you know, even in the country, I haven't seen hot springs. So. Some false advertising. Yeah, that's perhaps. right. And, but they had a racetrack. It's race course lane is where the racetrack was. And uh, and so they were, you know, attracting people to come out. And those homes on the tracks were summer homes. Uh, and so they're built. Actually, they do stay very cool in the summer. But in the wintertime, they can be pretty uh, pretty frigid. Well, they're bigger ho- so, homes. Yeah. And, and, yeah, they didn't know how to really deal with that when right. they built them. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so raising kids here... I imagine you have fond memories of raising kids. Oh yeah, it's a great town for to raise kids in and to ha- for the kids. I think you know we could still sort of turn the kids loose and let them run around town and you know come home when it was dinner time and all that stuff like we did when we yeah, were kids. Right. And I don't you know people with my kids' age anyway didn't have that experience much and. Uh, uh, then all the kids' sports and, you know, get to know the other parents from school and sports. And that's how I met Silent Rob, was <laughs> our kids playing sports together. And, or you know, I'm sure we met at some point at kids. But, you know, he sounds like you were, too, one of those private school kids. We uh, were both private school yeah, kids. Yeah. So, we uh, actually went to Arch Rivals. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. It's all but, good. Uh, yeah. So Did you, and I imagine your kids did this, too. I know I did it, and I'm sure Rob did it. Did you, when you put coins on the tracks to have them run over was it a penny every time or were you using uh nickels and oh no i was a poor kid it was a penny every time but (laughs) as a kid i never could find the things i don't know because they blew blew away (laughs) or the track took them wherever that's right i i I think i found like half of them oh really yeah that's good yeah it just took a while to search i wasn't that patient I didn't. Uh, I don't think I did it that many times as a kid. Yeah, you would think you'd do it more often if you grew up that close to the tracks. Yeah. but yeah, I only did it. A it few gets times. boring after a while. I, yeah, I do remember my kids would. You know, I'd have birthday parties and you know have you know fourteen boys over or whatever, and the trains would come and thirteen boys would run to the fence and watch the train. <laughs> and mine are like, what's 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 going on? You know, <laughs> what are you doing? And when they had sleepovers, the kids are waking up every time right. a train comes through and your kids are no problem they're that's asleep right. yeah. that's right i lived a block off the tracks and i used to say that at friends that would come over and they'd be like hey did you hear that train last night and i'd be like nope sure didn't. <laughs> that's right, so no, that's right. No, no clue like how that's did right. you not 
That's right. And, and pennies, I'm with you guys. It was they were hard to find. I guess that had something to do. They were pretty close to the same color as the tracks. Yeah. And the the gravel and, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. We should have been smarter and used silver. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, let's talk about some fun athletes that you've worked with. Uh, Kevin Mitchell's a good name. Yeah. Uh, didn't work directly with Bonds, but it sounds like you uh, knew people that interacted with him. Yeah. And I, I, I really don't like to use client names very much. I sort of got... Where they're safe to use. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I sort of got famous, I guess, as a sports lawyer from representing Kevin Mitchell. So, you know, my name, you know, came up with his, I guess. So, because he was my first famous client uh, and so I, I don't feel real and, and he's just a great guy I, he would be perfectly fine with it but others are more sheepish about it but I've, I've represented some you know great um, players really you know, I've, I've started off in baseball with you know Kevin but what I did was re- ended up just getting a piece of business litigation with a agent and his players that invested mm-hmm. in a building in Richmond um, I was going to ask you how yeah. you connected to Kevin Mitchell or any yeah. of the other athletes. And so his agent um, was the one, and um, right about that time, um, he was, um, uh, you know, ended up having this trouble that we had to sue the Japanese team. So I'm like a 27-year-old lawyer, you know, suing this, you know, the Fukuoka Dei Hawks in Japan, and we sued him in district court in Los Angeles. You and never saw that coming, did you? No, I did not. did not. <laughs> see it coming at all and so it was uh you know a great experience for me and uh got to you know get a little bit of notoriety that way for kind of a big case for you know big name player and then you know kind of went from there but i did a bunch of baseball for a long time mostly because that agent but you know got to know other agents who would send me their players if they needed legal help and then um uh richmond is really actually kind of a mecca for golf agents in particular mm-hmm. uh, there was uh vinnie giles who's a great amateur player um became a super agent just represented everybody and pros inc was his company here in richmond he sold out to octagon it's been at least 15 years now but um he had you know the it seemed like everybody uh, pre-tiger woods you know tom kite davis love um curtis strange it was you know all the names he represented and a guy that had been with him but broke off from him doing his own practice that had a great book of players named Dave Merrigy, um, an agent. Um, he and I became friends. So I started representing golfers a bunch and represented a bunch of guys in the PGA Tour for a long time. And then somehow it um, became football. Um, hmm. I don't really know where or how the switch came about, but the NFLPA is in D.C. Most of their arbitrations are held in Alexandria, uh, where their arbitrator, they, they arbitrator, they like to use a lot is in Alexandria, and so uh, you know nationally, the football agents thought I lived in a suburb of D.C. I'd never tell them I didn't, and I'd go up there and do their arbitration. So I um, did you know a bunch of those for a, a lot of players and a lot of agents, just disputes between players and agents or certification issues for agents and. Mm. Um, uh, so because the agents have to be certified by the NFL, right? By the PA, by, by the, the players PA. association. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, the no, way it works sense. is that you know the the union in any you know labor situation represents the players, and so the union delegates their authority to the agents to negotiate wages for the players. So, so they want to make sure they're certified and they understand how everything should work. Yeah, that's that's right, and also that they're not the kind of people that are going to steal from the players and or and that they know what they're doing. Baseball is tremendous. I loved working with the baseball union. They are um, really, really smart, really good at what they do. All the unions are, but baseball is just incredible at how 
good they operate. And so they're very strategic about everything they do and they want the agents to be on board and understanding how it works because the agents, you know, if I'm able, I'm not an agent, but if an agent is able to negotiate a better salary for one player, everybody, every player benefits, right? Because yeah, the tide tide lifts all Exactly. And if somebody messes up and signs a bad deal, same thing. Everybody, Tide's going down that, for people. That's right. And so they're very good about making sure everybody knows what they're doing and doesn't screw up a deal. That's and, great. Yeah. And they really are you know, very powerful for the players. I, I'm very uh, happy to hear that. Actually. Yeah. They're they're really good. Because the owners are making plenty of money. Oh, they are. Yeah. 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 So. So uh, golf, uh, football, and baseball. Right. Are, are, are you touching all three sports these days? Uh, yes, but it's mostly football these days. Okay. But, um, but yeah, I mean. And, it, and ironically, you didn't really, you didn't play? No, I didn't play. Up. Never did play, really. Yeah. You know, I played on the, uh, the Randolph-Macon field or on the, uh, you know, the Science Center field, but yeah, I never played organized football. So. Have you uh, intersected with concussions and CTA and that sort of thing? Tons of it, yeah. Really? Yeah, in fact, I was meeting with a client about it this morning. Um, it's. Pretty horrible, actually, what a lot of the players are going through. I've represented some of the guys who have committed suicide, who have shot themselves in the chest. I I assume because they wanted to preserve their brains so somebody could check it out, what was going on with them. But um, it's really sad and interesting to see these you know, really big, great athletes. Most NFL players are really, really smart because you have to be. May not be they're, book smart. but They're to, elite in a lot of ways. And, yeah. But to make it in that league, if you're an offensive lineman in that league, you got to be so smart because to know where you got to be on every play from, you know, they'll play different positions because somebody gets hurt. Yeah, <clears throat> It's really incredible how smart those guys are. And then um, your brain gets sloshed around enough you get this CTE and they lose emotional control is a big part of it. And it's really kind of scary. And some of them can't maintain a family because it's dangerous. Um, and they're really nice people who just have these episodes because of the CTE and they can't even diagnose it until you're dead. The only way to diagnose CTE is by autopsy. So, um, it's scary stuff. Our, our players, uh, and I'll actually ask your perspective on all ages, like, do, do we do a good enough job as a society letting younger players play football? And, and my son played football when he was he started playing contact when I think when he was six or seven, um, and I, it was his choice. I certainly didn't uh, yeah. say you have to go play because it's a family tradition sort of right. thing. But he played. Um, I, I don't know at the uh, child level we do a great job of letting folks understand what the risks are. I wonder what it's like at the college and pro level. Are these guys eyes wide open? We understand the risk and this is the way we're going to provide for ourselves and our families. And so we're, we're bouncing risk and reward. These days, I, I think at some level it's got to be, I'm not going to say every one of them, particularly at college level is educated about it, but I, I think that, um, you know, they, they have to know that there's some danger in it now. And it's such a big difference now, how big and fast these guys are that they just weren't 20 or 30 years ago. And, uh, um, they, you know, when you have a massive body going really fast that stops really fast because it's another massive body going really fast, the brain just 
hits the front of your head. That's that's all there is to it. And I don't care what your helmet is. And there's no helmet yeah. technology on earth that's going to stop that from happening. No, not in football. And uh, and so I think people now know what they're doing, the risk that they're taking when they do it. I'm sure they don't think about it. None of us do as, you know, 18 to 22-year-old kids or, right. you know, or boys anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't, don't think about that. The NFL players, I mean, I'm told now that they've done surveys and most NFL players won't let their sons play football. So it's wild, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, they've, a lot of them have made a good amount of money because, you know, they've, they've gotten themselves out of a situation because they played football and their kids don't have to. Right. Um, because I think that's how they view it as something they have to do. Now they love playing. Don't get me wrong, but they know the danger. I think it's a fun sport to play. Yeah. Um, it's fun to watch. Oh yeah. It is absolutely entertaining. Yeah. Um, Oh, it's our, but there are gladiators these days, right? We love watching the hard hits. And, yeah. Um, you know, and they're, they're getting hurt out there. And I do wonder what the future of football is. It's hard to imagine it going away, but um, we're getting some really you know, messed up people as a result of it. We, so. we might see it in our lifetimes. Our kids probably do see the end of football with such, like, I'll say horrific blows yes. to each other. I, I think you, we will. And sometimes I wonder if they wouldn't be better if they took the pads off. Rugby players don't do that to each other. They tackle they in an entirely different way. They don't hurt their heads. They hurt right. their knees, but yeah. they don't hurt their right. heads. Right. That's right. So Yeah, because uh, you're making a decision like, wow, I'm, I might crack my skull right. <laughs> if I right. go with this hard. That's right. Well, and you're just – people aren't designed to do that, right? But if you have that helmet on, you, you feel like you can do a lot more. You can do whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, so um, when you're working through an agent with players – uh, and it comes down to the player versus the team or the player versus the league, perhaps? Or is it really just player and team? It's usually player versus team. Sometimes it's player against the league and a disciplinary issue, right? The mm. commissioner. Um, that's, I see that a fair bit, too. Uh, you do not have to answer this question because I don't know if it's uh, yeah. problematic for you. But at what point do you think over half the players have some sort of CTE problem? Two years in the league, four years in the league. Does seventy percent of them come in with CTE issues, or there's no real way of knowing? Uh, there, to me, there's no real way of knowing. It's it's such you know develops over time, and everybody's different, right? I think some people can play their whole career and not have a problem. It's weird, and right? Then, yeah, and then some get the problem real quickly. But yeah, and you don't really know that they had the problem until after they've died, right? Yeah, so you can't diagnose it anyway. You can, you have indications. Me, you can tell, yeah, but it's you can't know for sure. So. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of guys have committed suicide. Uh, yep. And I think a lot of it, maybe 15, 20 years ago, was underreported quite a bit. Yeah, once Junior Seau committed suicide, that was really the first one that everybody stepped up and took notice. Wow, there's something going on here. But you're right, there were a number of them uh, that, that had committed suicide before that. And they were struggling with life because of brain injuries, I think. Yeah. But, you know, we don't know. Life's hard enough. Yeah. That's right. Right. Uh, yeah. That's not right. be able to control your emotion, I can't imagine. Yeah. And when you're that big, you, you become pretty scary to the rest of society. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right. So football, that's, that's funny. Your stepfather was a football coach. Right. And you didn't play, and then you end up uh, being pretty heavily involved in uh, that profession. Yep. It's wild. Yeah. A little interesting. And, and honestly, my stepfather, you know, being who he was, had nothing to do with it. I mean, you know, pretty famous football coach, really, at least for being here at Randolph-Macon and um, had no connection to anything to me ultimately getting to. It's really ironic. 
Yeah. Uh, sort of like that first agent that I represented went to UVA, played both football and baseball there. And he comes out and says he's going to be an agent because he grew up as a great Pennsylvania around Philly area player and he knew all these people who were going to the major leagues and were going to go to the NFL. And he said, I'll represent all my buddies. He never represented one person that he knew growing up. He only he had to start all over. And, wow. Um, so you're, you know, it's just kind of the way things develop. A lot of agents have law degrees. A lot do. And so they can yeah. play both roles. Right. Yeah. Right. Interestingly, as I tell my law students, it actually might put you at a disadvantage because legal ethics are a much higher level than sports agent ethics. Yeah. And, uh, and if you can get disbarred if you don't follow legal ethics. So, uh, you mentioned you're an adjunct professor. I think you are, you have three classes that you're actively doing today? It's only today? only one class at University of Richmond. You've, you've had one at VCU, though. I've taught, point. yeah, I've taught a sports law in their sports management program. Um, I've, uh, and then uh, I've taught at William & Mary in the, their law school. I've taught the sports law class there for a while, but it's just too far to drive once a week. And yeah, yeah. But I've been, I taught uh, trial skills at Richmond for a while until Bob Shepard, the sports law guy retired and they asked me to take over sports law. So you're doing sports law at U of yeah, R now. Yeah. Uh, did, so have you been pulled into all those adjunct professor opportunities or did you seek them out? No, I've, I've pretty much pulled into it. Um, the trial skills one, I mean, somebody asked me to do it, but I was, you know, I, I thought that'd be a lot of fun. So I jumped on it, but, um, and then the sports law is great. It's really fun to go talk sports with the students, you know, and I get a lot of former athletes in the class and, you know, it's interesting people. Uh, so I enjoy it, but it, um, it wasn't something I was really seeking. So, uh, but you're doing it and you've done it, uh, at three different institutions. Are you, are you lecturing primarily, uh, or is it a good mix of lecturing and then a lot of grading of work or do you have, are there people that help you with grading of the work? There are no people that help with grading the work, but at law school, there's, there's actually very little grading. Almost all of it is a final exam or a final project. I always do a negotiation project for my students where they negotiate a sports deal of some sort. Are you and on the other side of the negotiation? No, they negotiate with other students, okay. and then they present to me what they've done. So um, so I, I, I grade their projects. and but it's So intellectually hard and stimulating, but not a ton of work outside of the lecturing in the final process. That's right. Yeah, it's not. I mean, we um, the lecturing is all on cases, and the cases are pretty much the same every year. So um, I have to read them every year. In fact, I laugh and tell the students that I know I'm the only one who's reading all the cases every year, but uh, you know, I feel like I need to be updated on, you know, remember all the cases pretty well. So some of them I love. So it's, you know, they're really fun cases that are, like Jerry Tarkanian's case against the NCAA is just great because he uh, got fired by UNLV, which is a state actor, because the NCAA told UNLV they had to fire him. And um, they didn't want to fire him. And they considered actually leaving the NCAA as an option because they said they had to fire him. And ultimately they have to. And so Jerry Tarkanian's lawyer shows up the day after he gets fired in, in state court in Nevada and with moving for an injunction saying, let him keep his job while we sort all this out. And so, the, of course, I'm, I can see the lawyers for UNLV, who are the, the party getting sued on the other side. Yeah, Judge, you, why don't you enter that injunction? Because <laughs> they want to keep him as the basketball sure. coach, right? And He's so, a great recruiter. And yeah, and, and they're you know going to the Final Four a bunch. And so he, um, 
so they kept, you know, he got an injunction. And uh, that was 1977. The Supreme Court finally decided in 1988 that the NCAA that had been dragged into it wasn't a state actor, so he didn't have a constitutional claim. He lost his case, but he remained basketball coach at UNLV for 11 years. <laughs> so I just love that case because it's great lawyering, right? The yeah. lawyer, lawyer won, and then he ended up going to coach for San Antonio and the pros. but uh, And he also, yeah. in during those 11 years, might have gone to the Final Four at least he, once. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he did. I mean, a really successful run uh, there at UNLV. Yeah, so they, they, they were undefeated uh, in the early 90s, and right. they lost to Duke in the finals. Yeah, that's right. Or maybe it was the Final Four game. I can't remember yeah. which, but it was yeah. – Duke had no business beating UNLV that year. <laughs> yeah. No basketball. So, No, I, I mean, it, there was an occasional – basketball athlete I'll represent on some business issue or whatever. Uh, and I've represented women's billiard players and luge and, you know, all sorts of uh, interesting sports on different things. But uh, luge, yeah, I had an Olympic athlete on a sponsorship deal that uh. I represented. And uh, so, yeah, I'll do um, different, you know, di- and, you know, lots of different sports here and there. But And so I have done a little bit of basketball, but that's not been a primary area for me is, so. is it usually about uh how much they're getting paid and how they're getting paid or are there other clauses that they care about that have nothing to do with the financials directly a big one that you see is the morals clause where it's come up a bunch lately where you know a player does something that may not be consistent with the product and so the uh, sponsor wants to cancel the deal mm-hmm. and um, I've, I've had a lot of disputes over morals clauses, whether somebody violated or not. And the interesting thing is on the front end, negotiating them, the sponsors almost don't care. They'll usually start off with a clause that says, if you do anything that you know brings a bad image on the brand, we can terminate the contract. Which, I mean, is that getting divorced? Is it, you know, I mean, obviously lots of bad things, you know, commit a murder, that's going to do it, but it's getting divorced in some people's eyes would be. And, uh, and so I'll, I've done lots of times negotiated those and wrote back very detailed things, you know, commit a felony or misdemeanor, you know, moral turpitude or something. And they always accept it when I, mm. it's funny, I've, I never have had anybody push back. Wow. Um, and so, um, they, you know, they, but that's, that's a big one. And then it's a lot, I've been rep, I've represented a lot of coaches that have been terminated, um, over the years. In fact, in basketball more than anything actually coaches yeah. get terminated and then the school doesn't want to pay them on their contract so we've had to sue in some form or fashion things like that so. does that happen a lot where the school doesn't want to pay post firing it well usually they're they try to find some way to negotiate it down a settlement um, effectively yeah and well i mean i will say um I, I won't use the coach's name but he was national champion coach and he was coaching at a state school in tennessee few years ago and uh most people may not know it's a state school but it's memphis and uh Uh, he uh they they terminated him because they wanted to hire penny hardaway and uh uh, who had never coached even a high school team he coached an aau team great player and and, yeah great and their best player ever and uh um and so they terminated him and just made up reasons to not pay him and i will give him a lot of credit the school refused to pay him It's, it's a state school so the attorney general's office took over as soon as we sued and the attorney general's off the lawyer in that office. As soon as he looked at it, called up and said, "Yeah, we're not fighting this. We're gonna we're gonna pay you." So they paid the coach. How'd you get involved so, in that? Uh, his agent. Okay. His agent called me in. Yeah. So you're you're like a top five sports lawyer in the country. Oh, I I don't I, I don't, they don't they don't have a ranking. I have no idea. I, I do sports law. I have no idea where you. Where Based you on rank. what we're talking about, in my deep and broad knowledge of sports, 
I know nothing about the law. <laughs> I'm going to put you in the top 25. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I certainly know a lot of other sports lawyers out there. They do it full-time, and I represent lots of other people and businesses and things. Um, I do general business litigation. It's, sometimes it's most of my practice. Other times it's you know, other times sports is most of my practice. So are you exhausted at the end of each day? No, I'm usually charged up actually. Yeah. So, so the um, work charges you up. Yeah. Yeah. That and I, you know, I, I do get exhausted because I run with this group in Ashland at five thirty in the mornings, most mornings, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's uh, but yeah, it charges me up. So. How far are you running? Uh, somewhere between three and five miles most of the time. I'm not a good for you. Not a long distance runner. No knee so. problems. No hips. No. No, because I just started becoming a runner late in life. Okay. Um, you know, maybe five or six years ago, I started running seriously. So. So you uh, you definitely are a morning person. Yes. Yeah. 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 No doubt. All right. I'm going to ask you a fun question that we ask right. most of our guests. It's a little. It, I'm, I was going to say it's a little out of left field. It's very out of left field. One time only your talk show host. Right. It can be a daytime show. It can be a late night show. It can be whatever you want. It sounds like it would be a daytime show for you since you're a morning person. Right. Uh, you get to pick your guest. Your guest can be alive or dead. Uh, they can be famous or not famous. You can know them or not know them. You can go for ratings. You can go for uh, thought-provoking. You can go for whatever you, whatever you want it to be. You, can have a, you get to have a male guest, a female guest, a musical act, soloist or group. Uh, and if you're into stand-up comedy at all, you can have a comedian. Come on. Who are your four or three guests? Well, I don't know. You've know, thought about this question some, having listened oh, to this podcast So you're, you're one of the few so, that has actually listened to the entire episode. Right, right. <laughs> so, you, I mean, I feel like I have to say Jesus, right? So <laughs> well, That's a pretty so, common answer. But, but then I was thinking about it. I think, you know, if you want to have an interesting talk show, right, what I'd love to see is Jesus and Donald Trump. I just think that would be fascinating. <laughs> so, you, so. You, you're gonna, is that are two males? Is one replacing one of the other three that I've laid out? Or uh, well, just out of politicians wasn't even on the list, but I don't follow rules, right? So, fair, fair, fair <laughs> you want an interesting talk show? That's what you got. So, it's uh, I, I I say this it, this is also very public. So, but I've been representing Jerry Falwell and his battles with liberty. And I am so fascinated by that school and the religious right. And, you know, I'm very moderate politically and certainly not in the religious right. But it's so interesting to observe how all that goes on um, for me. I think so. if uh, Jesus and Donald Trump were on your talk show, my head would explode about five <laughs> minutes in. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, All right, female. Do you have a female? For your show, or is it just going to be the well, Jesus and Donald Trump? Well, I mean, you, you can add in a Ann Coulter or my law school classmate Laura Ingram if you want to make it really interesting. Okay, but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, no. There, I mean, hadn't really thought about female, and you know, um, you know, I guess I'd maybe with that group put in Willie Nelson. Okay, if you're going to go with a musical act, just to make you know, we're going to he's still it. doing it too. It, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. still just showing up on commercials. So yeah, he's he's still making money too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What so. about what about comedy? Are you a fan of stand-up comedy? I am, but I can't say that. I mean, you know, the people I would say. Well, I think Ron White is hilarious. He's you know kind of his timing. Dated. His timing yeah. is impeccable. Yeah, and so he's he is my favorite. But he's been around for a while. So. He's still doing it though. Yeah. Oh yeah. He is. Yeah. He so. got out of it for a while, and yeah. then uh, I think he got pulled back in. Yep. And he loves so. it. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ron, Ron White's hilarious. Yep. Wow. So Willie Nelson, Donald Trump. Jesus, and uh, 
Ron White and possibly Laura Ingram. And <laughs> I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to come uh, up with you know somebody would be interesting. That there. would be an explosive show. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think everybody would have to tune in. Yes, I would not so. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot, a lot of love and hate, I think, from the audience. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. All right, uh, tell, tell me about your uh, your boys. Uh, so my oldest, Trey, is living in Miami. He went to University of Miami and graduated a few years ago and uh, uh, started a business while he was a sophomore in college and um, sold a whole bunch of shoes on, on the Internet. And uh, COVID hit and his business really took off. So he uh, sold it and retired for a while. He is now, he's now bought another internet business and is just starting up again. So with something he bought that was already in place instead of a true startup, but yeah, he's, but he's an great. entrepreneur. He's, he's a, an entrepreneur. He's yeah. doing great. He's doing all sorts of investments around, you know, Miami, a lot of them are tech based. Um, and then uh, my middle one, Bailey is a senior at the university of Utah in the video game design program. Uh, so he, graduate in May and uh, hopefully get employed in that field. And then my uh, um, my youngest son is a junior at University of Miami, followed his oldest brother down there, and he's the he's the crazy one. So uh, he's having a great time down there. So Crazy because he's the baby and maybe got away with some things that the older two didn't get away I, I'm with. Not, I'm not sure anybody can explain why Cal's <laughs> like Cal is, but he is, he's tons of fun. There's no question. And everybody loves Cal because he is – Mr. Entertainment and uh, a great, great sort of sports story too, because he was going to be a football player like his stepfather. He was always very connected with my stepfather, his grandfather, and uh, wore the. In fact, my stepfather's number was eleven. And Cal, even when we had him in little league, I'm looking at Silent Rob here, yeah. who would just we draw numbers randomly, and he'd get number eleven. It mm. was like, you know, my stepfather had passed away then would have was pulling it out of the box. Yeah. And, yeah. But and my stepfather always said, don't let them play organized football until they get to high school. Just no sense, and you can learn everything you need to know from high school on. And so Cal goes out to um, Patrick Henry and starts doing August two-a-days, comes home after about day three and says, this sucks. <laughs> and the kids in the gym are playing volleyball, and they're going to win a state championship. And I'm like, Cal, Patrick Henry's won one state championship in football, <laughs> and they're not going to win the state championship, but go do whatever you want to do. And Lo and behold, they won the state championship, and now it's seven in a row. And yeah. Cal was uh, regional player of the year and team MVP, and was on the he he played on the varsity team for three of the years he was there from his sophomore year on, and uh, really cool experience for him. But uh, um, lots of fun. So always fun to win. Uh, yeah. So your oldest goes all the way down to Southern Florida. Your yeah. middle goes to Utah. Right. Were they, were they just like wanted to get out and experience the world and apparently, didn't want to be home? Apparently wanted to get, get away from me. I don't know, <laughs> but no, I, don't, I don't think so. No, they just my middle one did go to Mary Washington for a while and transfer to Utah because the video game design program is really strong there. Um, the other two, I think, wanted to go to. I mean, Trey pretty brave. He went to South Florida, didn't know a soul. Yeah, and it's very uh, brave, yeah, eighteen year old. Yeah, and he so he went down there, and it took him a little while to adjust. But once he did, he obviously did great. And then I think Cal wanted to go there probably because his older brother did. Um, so they didn't actually overlap. They were exactly four years apart. But Trey was down there living in Miami when yeah. Cal went to school. So uh, and if Cal needed anything, yeah, Trey was yeah, around. He was there. Yeah. 
So it's really cool. All right, uh, two last things. I'm really sorry I forgot that you didn't live in Ashland. Oh, no. from like the age yeah. of three on. Uh, I actually forgot Rob didn't come to the town of Ashland until you were five or six. Yeah, I forget that all the time too. Um, but of course, I don't have any memories before the age of five. Um, last story about a sports person that you've worked with that would uh, be enjoyable for our listening audience. Do you, have, I, do you have one more in the in the pipe for us? I don't know that there are any really good ones that come to mind. I've had um, lots of interesting sports experiences. I can I can talk about the the Ashland one here. Not a great story, but we had an embezzlement at the uh, Ashland Little League, and uh, Silent Rob here discovered it, and. Uh, um, you know, interesting experience for me to go through as as a former. I think I think I was probably off the board by then, but they called me and uh, um, and we had I had to sort of act as a pro bono lawyer to help guide everybody through it. And of course, Rob's the expert on the criminal side, but uh, um, really interesting experience there. Who so, embezzles from a little league? I, well, I won't use names, but. <laughs> We we had a apparently somebody does at least uh, one person. It, it actually happens. You see it a lot. It's shocking. Yeah. You hear about it in the news quite a bit. It's yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah, so. and until you live through it, you probably don't pay that much attention. And then once you see yeah. it, you you see a lot of it. So that's a uh, interesting uh, and sad story to end on because yeah. that, that bothers me that people do that. I mean, it's just yeah. kids playing sports, yeah. right? And you're trying to benefit yeah. in some sort of illegal, borderline immoral way. Yeah, that's uh, that's, a, that's a bummer. Yep, right. it is. You're so. gonna keep working. You're gonna keep doing the lawyer thing. Till, oh, I, till I, you well, can't I don't do know. Anymore. I don't. I don't plan to fall over at my desk, but I'll. I love it. I mean, I I do. I, it's incredibly stressful, but I do love what I do. So I'm gonna keep doing it for a while, and then try to figure out how to slow down. There's juice there every day. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, and it's in. I, you know, people would ask me what the plan for my day is, and the response is, the day's got a plan for me. I have no idea what's going to happen any day, and including, um, uh, you know, you just, every once in a while, for me, it's kind of incredible. I get a call from somebody famous I've never heard of before who said, I need you to represent me. And I'm like, you know, and that, that happened actually with uh, um, the, probably the most famous football agent. I actually thought it was my buddy screwing with me when they, you know, <laughs> a long time ago. And he calls me on my cell phone sitting at my desk. I'm like, Lee? really? The guy's name is No, he, he, he was out of the business by then, yeah. but uh, the one from South Florida. Okay. So, uh, um, and um, yeah, so it was, you know, it's interesting. Anything can happen. That's, so. uh, you have lived a, a wild, amazing, fun, Exhausting, challenging <laughs> life. Yeah, I know. I've had some good experiences, that's for sure. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Yeah. Well, Vern, thank you so much. I, thank you. I learned a ton about you. Apparently, I didn't know as much as I thought about <laughs> you before you got here. I knew a lot yeah. of the adult stuff, but I didn't know much about yeah. the childhood stuff. I got something. I, just, yep. I know this is Vern's episode, but I just, um, I think I've actually told you this before. But um, when I worked at Kings Dominion, I organized all the sports activities. And I worked with your stepdad. Oh, is that right? Yep. When he was the AD at, at Macon, because we would always have our basketball tournament at Macon. So um, oh. we would play the cross courts, whether we did a three-on-three three or a full five-on-five five or something like that. And I, you probably went to King's Dominion a couple of times on me because I gave him tickets. And, you know, yeah, in the, probably so. But for yeah. letting the use of the gym. So, yeah. But, yeah, your, your, dad, your stepdad was... Awesome. Oh, well, and actually, if you say if you get a talk show, you know, host or whatever, and it's anybody living or dead, 
it's going to be him I want on the list because he was right. probably the greatest human. I guess it's got to be Jesus, but he was a yeah, great yeah. guy. And I still have parents um, of kids he coached come up to me to say what an impact he had on their life. And yeah. um, he was just such a great guy and a huge asset for Randolph-Macon yeah. and Ashland. So. Yeah, that's all most of us can hope to do is have a positive impact on others. It yeah, sounds like yeah. he had a lot of positive impacts on a lot of folks. He really so. did. Yeah, he did. So. Well, cool. Thanks for doing this, Vern. I really appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.